0: Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek and welcome to episode 365 of Her, the podcast where you're gonna hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, ah, her dying. Wait a minute now, hold on now before you start panicking. This is, we're gonna be talking about the lost art of dying this is a totally cool episode. Hang loose now. All right. It's going to be awesome. And just know that this episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once a day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized just for women. To learn more, hop on over to smartypantsvitamins.com. And here's your first Reminder to click on iTunes after this episode to rate and review the show, because we love your feedback. So, all right, it's time for Her. Her, the podcast. The
1: naked truth
0: about women. Her mind, her body, her life. It's all about Her. I don't know about you, but as a physician, I have always, always been fascinated with what goes on in our culture as we think about death. Now, this is not some kind of downer episode, relax. This is really about folding in a piece of life, as it were. It's our life journey. And I'm always looking for beautiful, smart ways to be able to explain this to people and to share this kind of information and then along comes this absolutely positively amazing book called the lost art of dying reviving forgotten wisdom and the author is dr lydia dugdale and she is a physician an internist and the dorothy and daniel silberberg Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at Columbia University. And prior to her 2019 move to Columbia, she was Associate Director of the Program for Biomedical Ethics and and founding co-director of the Program for Medicine, Spirituality, and Religion at Yale School of Medicine. And in addition to being an internal medicine primary care doctor, she's also a medical ethicist. And her first book was entitled, Dying in the 21st Century. This was in 2015. And it really provided the foundation for the current book. Lydia, welcome to the HER podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. All right, what's
0: with you and death? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> 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 That's a great question. Uh, yeah. well, Dr. Vika, as you know, uh, so much of what we confront in the clinical setting in the hospital has to do with our finitude, with our finiteness as, as human beings. And quite early on in my training, I, I don't come from a medical family. So this was kind of my, my early exposure as I was growing up in medicine uh, was to patients who were, you know, connected to all kinds of machines whose vital functions were being maintained in the intensive care unit, even though everything about their body suggested that they were dying, Uh, organ after organ collapsing. uh, Sometimes it it would, you know, it would manifest as as terrible wounds all down their backside or their bodies literally decaying from the inside, and, and yet we could maintain their heart and their lungs and their kidneys through machines. And certainly there are um, cases where this is absolutely prudent and necessary, but there are also many cases in our hospitals and in our intensive care units in particular where people are being maintained despite the fact that they are almost nearly dead. And it, it felt to me early on that somehow we weren't thinking through this clearly enough, that somehow if patients and their families understood, fully understood what was going on in these extreme situations, that they that they would make different decisions. And so I started wondering if there was a way to empower patients to anticipate their death, uh, to do a little bit of homework, a little bit of preparation so that when, God forbid, they find themselves in the hospital, they can make more informed decisions, um, that they can make wise decisions. And so that that was sort of w- what I've been thinking about for maybe the last 15 years or so and, and kind of set out to try to figure out how to, how to mitigate this problem.
0: Okay, so there you are, and I, I can't thank you enough for pursuing this avenue because as a fellow physician this is a nightmare i don't know about your training but good lord um it, it's just it, it's a disorganized chaotic mess let's just be honest um and, and and also within the the context of our culture nobody wants to talk about it nobody wants to you know really have an open discussion um, I remember having huge problems with it with my own parents who are now both deceased. Um, they refused to deal with anything that had a, a conversation about their own you know, deaths and they both died much later in life um, and they lived very rich. And when I say rich, I mean just beautiful, wonderful lives, um, very vibrant, but they just would not discuss it. So there's this inbred you know, stereotypic craziness that goes on with this. Did you feel that too in your training?
1: Oh, definitely. Without a doubt, without a doubt. yeah, yeah. And, and and that's that's really what motivated this work, right? Can we do it differently? Can we talk about things differently? and and Pam, as you know, there are so many doctors who don't even want to have these conversations. So we just can't say this is a problem of the non-medical world. Uh, There are, I've had colleagues who've said to me, you know, I don't know why you write about death. I myself, I'm so afraid to die. I never tell my patients when they're dying. I don't want to have to talk about it. (laughs) Wait a second, you're the one who's privy to that knowledge that our patients need. If the end is coming, we need to be able to tell them, but doctors are human too. And that same existential dread or angst that affects, you know, many, many people affects clinicians as well.
0: Oh, I don't think there's any question. Um, I just went through a a terrible experience where uh, one of my best friends, unfortunately, um, because she had comorbidities, meaning that she had other extenuating medical conditions, was at high risk for COVID, and sure to form got the worst form of COVID, the Delta, and um, passed away. And when all of this was going on, the thing that also made death much more of a thing with the pandemic was the fact that you died alone. You you were yes. there in the hospital. You had no one to advocate for you. No one was allowed in there until that final, as it were. And I always think this is so strange. One compassionate visit by only two family members. That's all, that's all you're granted. Meanwhile, this person is sitting there you know, surrounded by people for all intent and purposes and hazmats. Um, And what a horrible thing to have happen. And then they're not told how serious it is. I remember receiving a text from her in the hospital. Um, They're lying to me. They're not sharing, um, you know, uh, the the truth. Um, I feel like it's much worse than they're letting on. And true to form, she was absolutely correct. Um, and I actually talked to the ICU guy. I mean, this was all by FaceTime because I was not allowed in there. I'm not family. Um, and, and he said he just didn't have the heart to tell most of these people. And, you know, once they're in the ICU, as you're well aware, I mean, the mortality rate's like 90%. So it, it's just, it's a difficult conversation. So let's go back to your beautiful book
1: and talk about Ars Morienti what is that? Sure. So, Ars Moriendi is Latin for the art of dying. And it refers to a genre of literature that developed uh, starting in the early 1400s, but really the the kind of yearning for this body of literature developed during the aftermath of the bubonic plague, also called the Black Death, that swept through Western Europe in the mid-1300s. Historians vary on how many people actually died. If you look at urban center, the records suggest that perhaps as many as one third to two thirds of the population died. Uh, Recently, there was just an article in the Times that suggested it was lower, especially in rural areas based on looking at pollen levels. But at any rate, lots and lots of people died from plague. And it really left society in a bit of a pickle. Uh, This is late middle ages. Many people were illiterate or semi-literate or uneducated, and there was a real um, deference to the social authorities to help people make sense of death to attend to the dying and the dead. And when you have plague sweep through that uniformly kills the old and the young, you know, the, the priest and the non-priest, it leaves people in a difficult situation because if there is no social authority, which would then have probably been a priest who could come and, you know, administer last rites or or perform a, a burial, then what are the people supposed to do? And there was this fear that death would come through again, whether it was another wave of the plague or whether it was famine or war. Life was very precarious, and people, you know, the, the sort of uneducated masses wanted to be equipped to attend to the dying and to prepare for death themselves without having to rely on someone. So there's this kind of yearning, this hunger for this, um, The you know, late Middle Ages, the social authority is is largely the church. This is before you have Protestants and Catholics. It's just kind of this monolithic church in the West that the church was in a bit of a mess. There were two men and then later three men simultaneously claiming to be Pope. It was a disaster. But by the time they finally kind of got their act together, it's the early 1400s and the first uh, sort of text that was distributed widely was a handbook on the preparation for death. What was to become the first version of this huge genre of literature that was adopted and adapted by different religious and even non-religious groups. It was translated, it circulated widely. It had such a broad reach that it came to the United States. And by the time of the US Civil War in the 1860s, the former president of Harvard University, Drew Faust, who is a Civil War historian, she wrote in her book, This Republic of Suffering, that whether you were from the East, uh, sorry, whether you were from the North or from the South, um, whether you were religious or not, it didn't matter. This idea of anticipating your death and preparing while you can, was just part of what it meant to be brought up well. Now I'm paraphrasing her, of course, but this is the idea that she describes in her book. So yeah, the Ars Moriendi uh, genre of literature on the preparation for death, really thought to be a handbook for your bedside, for everyone, doesn't matter what you believe, what group you belong to. And it was uh, wildly popular for more than 500 years, really interestingly falling out of favor after World War One and the flu pandemic, the global flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920. So we had that from World War One through to 1920 with the fourth wave of the flu pandemic, six years of sustained death worldwide. When people sort of emerged from that combination of war and flu, there was a real hunger at that point to shun these older ways of preparing for death and to just think about living Right, And if you can imagine how all of us have been feeling through the COVID pandemic and wanting to kind of get on with life, back to travel, get back to the old ways of doing things, and that's only been two years for us. Imagine if it had been six years, right? And this just this desire to, to put away the old and get on with the new. And that's what we see. And that's really when the Ars Moriendi* as a genre of literature, as a sort of cultural phenomenon, fell out of favor.
0: How interesting is that? And so here you have a book, and you said yourself, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to actually read this. This book seeks to explain and revive the Ars Morandi, not in its original form, thank you very much for that, uh, but in a manner that matches modern sensibilities. And what's interesting is you also say uh, at the end of your your first. chapter here if this whole project sounds morbid to you rest assured that it's not the art of dying well starts with the art of living well what do you mean by that
1: yeah that's right so if you think about it there is nothing we do in life that we do well without some sort of preparation it's impossible Everything we do well takes a little, at least a little bit of work. Even if we're naturally talented at something, we still have to put a little bit of work in. And so if, if there is at all a sense that we want to die well, then we need to sort of work backward and think about what that means, right? So for many people, you ask them how they want to die and they say, oh, at home with my family and loved ones surrounding me. Okay, well, what does it take to realize that? Uh, but it's more than just anticipating questions about technology and healthcare and the hospital and at home or in an institution how about this question what sort of legacy of character do you want to leave we often think about legacy as like you know some big foundation or some charitable act that's great that's great too, an important work. And that is also part of what we should consider. But the the earliest versions of the Ars Moriendi asked about these questions of character. What kind of person uh, do you want to be remembered as? And if you are, you know, kind of a, a an impatient, self-absorbed, uh, you, you know, whatever it is now, and you don't want to be remembered that way, then what sort of character traits do you need to Habituate yourself to? Do you need to practice? There's this idea going back to ancient Greek philosophy that we can cultivate the virtues, right? So for the ancient Greeks, you know, things like courage and justice, right? Can we become, adopt, can we grow into the kind of character that we want to be remembered as? So that's sort of. You think there's this domain of of healthcare in the hospital we need to think about. There's this domain of sort of who we are as a person. What about our communities? If you want those people at the bedside when you're dying, what is the state of those relationships now? How are you investing in those relationships now, such that those folks know that that you want them there at the end? Uh, are you nurturing those relationships? Is there stuff you need to to apologize for? Things you need to you know? Are you are you separated from someone that you need to restore that relationship? So these are all things that we need uh, to be practicing over the course of our lives, so that when god forbid we find ourselves in the hospital with you know whatever it is the work has been done right the the players are in place and so so this is the work of living well in order to die well
0: i i I absolutely love this because really what you're talking about quite frankly is a totality and that is you know when you you don't just live and then there's a separate category of dying Or death, you know, because there is a chronicity to some of this. I mean, if you have certain kinds of cancer, they become, as it were, a chronic issue, but, you know, uh, they may be very much implicated in how you die. And so, what I love about this is it also makes you very cognizant that um, dying is a piece of living, as it were it's part of the entire journey and it 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 should never be just sort of uh decentralized and compartmentalized out of this whole thing because i think that you know there's this uh wonderful book that was written by um a caregiver um a hospice basically caregiver in australia um her name is Bronnie ware and she wrote the five regrets of the dying and uh, obviously there's more than five, but these were the big five that she picked. And one of the things she noticed was just a tremendous amount of regret for things exactly as you detailed them in the book, which is, in your book, which is really looking at, were you able to hold on to those relationships? You know, were you able to nourish relationships? Did you create pretty incredible memories in your life because these are all priceless notice none of these have anything to do with you know material anything and you know i think that's kind of what this is all about almost thinking the way these stoics have for years because it's a very stoic thing to think about death you know you live as though today is your last day and that's kind of the way they did their thing Um, And I just think that the grand majority of people push it out of their reality, completely out of their reality, and then oh surprise when it actually happens. Uh, And it's just so important to have a book like yours to be able to have a guide, um, a blueprint for how you think about things like this. And so to that point, I think that, again, this pandemic that we're um, currently living through um, really brings home this whole issue of dying, death and dying. It has to. It pushes it right to the surface. Um, And so one of the things you stress in your book so beautifully is the whole issue of this. And I'm going to read your words. The Ars Moriendi was never intended to be practiced by an individual in isolation. Just as each of us requires support from a community, so too can communities garner strength from gathering to support an individual's sickness. It is to the community that we now turn. So talk to us about community.
1: Yeah, so um, I looked at many different versions of various R. S. Morandi texts as I was writing this book, and well, and writing the first book. And if I were to distill all of these various iterations down to two components, if we said nothing else to die well, you need these two things. Uh, they are uh, an acknowledgement of human finitude, right? The The recognition that we are mortal, which sounds obvious, but it's amazing how many of us live through each day without thinking about our mortality. Uh, and, and note, I say acknowledgement and not acceptance, because it's okay to have some fear, some angst about death, right? That's normal, that's human. But, and then the second thing, as you mentioned, is community, that we cannot live well to die well in isolation, as, as you note. What do I mean by that? Well, I think the best way to illustrate that is with a patient, her name is Diana, and she gave me permission to write about her and use her name, uh, and she came to me first when she just received a terminal diagnosis, she was told she had this terrible form of of uh, autoimmune lung disease, and this was going to kill her in less than six months. She needed a doctor to help her through this. She didn't know I was writing my first book on death at the time, but it turns out uh, she was very engaged in walking with me on that journey, and so I ended up writing about her in both books. She died while I was writing the second book, she actually far outlived her six months prognosis. You'll note the two books were published five years apart. Um, so she died while I was writing the second one. But what was extraordinary is we talked a lot about uh, acknowledging finitude and cultivating community. And she did exactly that. She went out and said to her close friends, to, and even to those who didn't realize they were so close to her, but they were going to become close. Essentially, this is the issue. I'm dying. I've been given this terrible diagnosis. She didn't have children, but she had some nieces and nephews. And so between her friends, her um, pastor, her community board members, uh, her nieces and nephews, she created this team and said, hey, guys, here's the thing. I'm dying and I'm going to need you to walk with me through this. And I was part of that team indeed we walked with her through that and she would host a couple of things out at her house and the whole team would go out to her house Uh, as she really declined in the end there were a few um, who went to great lengths to continue to really care for her well and in the end when she died Uh, She died in the hospital, which was not what she thought she wanted, but she actually realized that was probably the safest place because of her uh, breathing problems. She didn't want to feel like she was suffocating alone. But when I showed up at the hospital, I got a call 10 minutes after she died. I showed up at the hospital 10 minutes later, and there was the whole team there who'd driven you know, miles and miles and hours and hours to be at her bed as she was dying and then after she died. And it was extraordinary. It was like old friends even though some of them didn't know one another but because of the way that diana had knit these people to herself they had become interwoven in the lives of one another and we have this glorious time in the hospital even as we mourned her recent passing and then her uh, memorial service and thereafter was just another opportunity for this community of people to come together in, in really an authentic way. But it was the reason why our relationships were so tight is because she had done the work over her last five years of life of leaving us all together. And it it was beautiful. And I, I love that because, you know, people often ask me, they say, well, I'm a loner, or I only have a couple of friends, or I'm estranged from my family. You know, Diana didn't have a big family, She, you know, but she was able to sort of give this attention and to do the work in advance of her dying. And it showed it showed so beautifully even after she died so so that's just one example of how we can really work to nurture relationships uh, in our living and how our living is so intimately tied to our dying
0: i love it and and it's so terribly important to address that issue of community but guess what newsflash community does not you know you don't just sit there and community uh, assembles around you you got to work it god do the work and you, you have to cultivate those relationships because that's so terribly important. I want to move on to something that many people who knew I was going to do this uh, podcast reach out to me and and really wanted you to address the issue of fear. And and the fear thing is huge here. And I, I love this one uh, part of the fear chapter that you wrote, which was um all about waging war on death. And and until I had read this, quite frankly, um, I I had sort of almost forgotten how much of our own verbiage, both as providers as well as just, you know, patients, I suppose, um, out there, uh, really uh reverberates around, you know, war warlike terminology. Okay, his grandfather is battling pneumonia my friend is a cancer survivor i'm going to beat this infection she's a fighter she's going to kick this disease etc cetera, etc cetera. and then we march forth you know and we say to ourselves as just like little military generals reminding our loved ones and ourselves there's no reason to fear the enemy we have the strongest health care system of all no disease can conquer us o m g okay mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the minute i saw that you know when when it was you know very clear well no disease can conquer um, we'll, well wait a minute now because you and i are both physicians and you know that doesn't work that way so tell us about this military terminology i mean it even goes to things like uh you know bacteria bacteria you know what are they they're agents of disease bacteria we're invading and infiltrating again look at all this terminology how does this inform our own uh stereotypes as it were about what goes on with disease illness and death
1: yeah uh so great question i i use the work of susan sontag the great uh writer and intellectual who herself suffered from three different cancers, the last one most likely caused by the chemotherapy for her first one, uh, because her cancers were separated by decades and those early chemotherapies were particularly toxic. But uh, Susan Sontag has this glorious book, Illness as Metaphor, where she really, you know, marches us through this language, right? And what does the language do? Language is not morally neutral. Language itself tells a story. And as you just summarized, the language that we use to describe illness and disease and our treatment of it is very much victorious language. When the US government sends soldiers into war, we don't ever tell them, well, you know, guys, you might not win, right? Or it's, it's gonna be bleak or, right? It's always the language of conquering, of victory, of the cup half full, right? And, and that's the same thing we do in medicine. So if there is a 70% chance that you will be dead in a year, it, there's actually a 30% chance you will be alive. Right. And we always tell the story in medicine of how we are going to overcome it. And so, what does that do about our ability to sort of sit with our finitude? Well, it makes us not have to do that work, really, because we're not emphasizing the 70% death at 70% chance of death at one year. We're emphasizing life, uh, we're emphasizing victory, conquering death. And that makes it really hard for people uh, to then do the work of preparing for death because death is not really ever listed as an option.
0: I don't know if that's helpful. No, that is beyond helpful. And i, I you know, I have a little you know thought out there for all of our wonderful listeners, and that is <clears throat> if you want to be optimally prepared for death, live a really great life. And that means that, you know, you're going to be, not worrying about regrets, Um, live a life just absolutely chock full of amazing memories, however you want to define amazing memories, Um, and do everything, because one of the things um, I've heard so often, you know, I was a physician um, frontline uh, for so long and spent a lot of time in critical care, um, was, you know, I'm not ready to die what what does that actually mean i'm not ready to die so many of those people you know when asked to explain that that statement actually say well i haven't done x y and z so i'm not ready to die well in the best of all worlds you do you do your you know your level best to fill your life with uh, your own personal professional achievements um, and just keep pushing it, um, and know that you've just done the best you can so so as to alleviate a lot of that regret and fear. Um, and really, quite frankly, as you point out, fear is anger. You know, it's like you're angry. Um, but, you know, try to help us understand this whole issue um, of I'm not ready yet. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So if you think about the pandemic and going, just going back to our, our, just our conversation just before this about the language of war, if you look at, go back and look at the headlines over the last two years, everything has been about how we are going to get on top of this. Uh, We're going to fight it. We're going to overcome it. And yet there is um, a way in which it would have been helpful for everyone globally, if there, that that narrative of our uh, ability to come up with a vaccine, etc., would have been accompanied by an ongoing conversation about the need to be sobered up about our mortality. Right. So, um, when we say I'm not ready yet, uh, what if sort of at a regular intervals we would have said, "Hey." Guys, we're in a global pandemic. We're not quite sure of vaccine efficacy, uh, if it's going to affect you or me uh, in a way that would lead to our deaths. So if we were to be dead next week, what would we need to have accomplished? What would we need to have in place? Uh, who has the password to our smartphones, right? To our computers, etc.? cetera. If we're doing the work of preparing, then not ready yet, should never really be something that we utter. We can be disappointed that the end is coming and that we have things we had hoped to do that maybe everything on our bucket list is not accomplished, but we're not It's not that we're not ready because we're always doing the work of preparing. So I'll just say briefly, I moved to New York City six months before the pandemic broke, and I take care of patients here at Columbia. We were uh, devastated, especially by the first wave. I'm usually an outpatient kind of GP, primary care doctor, but I was pulled in, as we all were, to take care of COVID patients. I did most of my work in the emergency department, which is... I have no business working there, but there I was during COVID and I would come home to my family regularly, a lot of docs and nurses stayed in hotels, but I I went home and we would have this conversation. My girls were eight and 10 when the pandemic broke. And I would say, look, we don't understand this virus, especially early on. It is very possible that when we get to the end of this pandemic, one of the four of us won't be alive. That's possible. I know it's hard not to be in school. I know it's hard to be in this small Manhattan apartment all the time. I know this is really difficult, but we need to love each other well because there is no guarantee about tomorrow. And I think that's kind of uh, the refrain that we want to have uh, throughout our lives. Can we live fully uh, with one eye to the end game? Right, Not getting hung up on it, not being morbid, not sort of fixating on death or being super spooked out about it, but just keep one eye on the end game and live into the fullness of life now. Hopefully we don't have to say I'm not ready yet, but we could say, yeah, disappointed that it's now, but I'm I'm as ready as I can be. I, I, I think that would be a, a worthy goal.
0: I love that. I hope everyone out there in the Her Podcast land um, is, is hearing what we're saying. The central theme is you live well, you die well. And we have to start having conversations about that. And, and that means that you're prepared, you're realistic, you're grounded, you're mindful. You're, you're really thinking about this and you're preparing. Um, you and I, um, you know, Lydia, have, have had patients also who are very well prepared. I mean, they really, they understood what was going on. They did have perhaps the ability to know what was gonna be happening in the the future. Maybe they had a chronic issue and they had some time to be able to prepare. But even if they didn't, I remember to this day, oh my gosh, it was like, again, uh, of this magnificently beautiful woman. She was 50 years old, um, lovely, elegant, um, was a major, major, um a philanthropist uh came from a, a very well-to-do family in the washington dc area uh and um just a gorgeous family beautiful kids um and she lived this incredible life uh where she was able to just get back to the community so much in so many ways volunteer whatever anyway so there she was sitting in front of me one day um with a, a fresh diagnosis of pancreatic cancer now you know where this is gonna go. Because, um, you know. So, uh, you know, she did pass away within six months. Um, pancreatic cancer, as most of us know, um, is devastating, uh, a devastating diagnosis with the mass majority of people dying within a fairly short period of time. And yet she, she sat there calm, almost serene. And she said, you know, Dr. Peek, there's absolutely no question um i i have a beautiful life i love 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 my friends my family and it's just i would love to live longer but the fact that i'm not going to live longer i'm actually okay with i have lived a good life i almost fell off my chair you know it was just oh my god i re- that, that's how much i remember her because she just had it together that way. She had figured it out and she had lived every day like it was her last. She was just putting herself there. So it was just sort of a, a mind blower when we come to that. What I also want everyone out there on the Hurt Podcast Land to know, that in this beautiful book, The Lost Art of Dying, um, in the back, uh, there is this really cool part of the book which is a gallery. It's art for a new Ars Moriendi. And this was um, commissioned by you. Uh, and um, this was a uh, an artist whose name is Michael Duggar. And um, you had commissioned him uh, to be able to take some of the old woodwork um, and the wood carvings that were done um, from a, from a long time ago and actually contemporize them into, Um, Some beautiful uh, sketches uh, on everything from death to finitude, community, context, fear, the names of every one of your chapters, body, um, spirit, which I thought was just beautiful, ritual, life you know, showing intergenerational. So you need to see these pictures. They're very beautiful. I thought that that was absolutely a brilliant move on your part, um, Lydia, to be able to put that in this book because um, it really kind of rounded it out. So so thank you for that.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was, that was great fun. I have to say a reviewer suggested it to me and uh, I thought that's brilliant. Because the original Ars Moriandi, very early on to address the those who were illiterate or semi-literate, they produced an illustrated version. So even if you couldn't read, you could study these images and still prepare for death. And so I thought, wow, that would be great to have artwork accompany the chapters. I'll just tell you, um, the inside scoop is that the publisher <laughs> was a little nervous. She thought the, the images would scare people off because they some of them are. In your face you know and so we ended up deciding to make a gallery in the back so that they would all be together and people wouldn't flip through and be put off by these you know images interesting that would, um, get people to think about death
0: no I, I i just think it's fabulous so everyone you know i really want you to you know uh think about this big time um and really uh to to consider this as a piece of your life. I love the fact that on your cover, you have one of my favorite people who's been on my podcast uh, a number of times, Mary, uh, Piper, um, the author of, uh, Women Rowing North, which was one of my favorite books. And she wrote, I recommend this book to all who are mortal. <laughs> That's so Mary Piper. I mean, seriously. Um, but I, I, I absolutely love it. And, and really, um, at the end of the day, uh, I, I think that this is a very important book. That's why I asked Lydia to be on this uh, podcast. It's that important. All of us need to uh, integrate this kind of discussion into our life. And when you wake up in the morning, ask yourself, am I filling my life with meaning and purpose and, and memories and nourishing relationships so that I feel so good that I'm okay with really discussing things like end of life whenever that will take place. Am I okay with that? And is this becoming more, as it were, normalized for me to be able to do something like that? Well, I hope the Lost Art of Dying um, is is going to be one of those tools in our little toolbox um, to be able to help navigate how we do this well, how we how we integrate this well into our life. So for that, Lydia, all I can say is thank you, thank you for being on the HER podcast to share your wisdom.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been delightful to chat with you.
0: Awesome, and everyone, we've been talking to Dr. Lydia Dugdale, and I want you to run on over to her website. That's Lydia Dugdale, that's spelled D as in dog, U-G. D and dog, A-L-E, dot com to learn more about her wonderful work. Um, and please pick up this book, The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom. Oh, I, I just think it's a game changer. There's no question. All right. Now, as I told you before, I want you to click on iTunes right now and rate and review the show because I want to hear from you. Why? Well, because I'm Dr. Pam Peek, the host of the HER podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peake MD. And remember to catch every single episode of the Herb podcast on iTunes, Radio MD, and all of the large platforms. I'm on all of them. Thanks for listening today. Please stay safe and stay well.